Hey everybody, welcome to Between the Pints, your source for the business side of craft cider. That's right, this is the oft-promised, long-awaited cider episode of the show. I'm your host, Aaron Gore, a.k.a. The Real Red Delicious, and I'm joined today by my co-host... Ryan Moses, the beer counselor, fresh back from Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado, sounds like a fun trip. It was very fun. I love Denver, a lot of good beer, a lot of... I, I may have heard about a few good beers coming out of Denver. Saw Southern Cultural and the Skids play a concert in a barbecue place it's really fun of course. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> well in the uh spirit of celebrating our favorite alcoholic apple aperitif uh we're joined today by jay bradish of red clay cider works and brian boschman of good road cider works guys thanks for being on the show thanks for having us hey no happy to have you here uh ryan you got any brew news for us today let's get started with that i have a actually a pretty good amount of stuff today i will i'll yeah, say wait 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 to overachieve by the way I'll save the Dave Infante article for last. Cause I was <laughs> That's going to be that. a lot to unpack. All right. But first up, we will do AB InBev pumps up the volume in Africa. So basically, AB InBev is going to... Wakanda forever. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. They're getting ready to drown Africa in lots of lots of eh, mediocre beer, basically. That doesn't sound like <laughs> AB InBev at all. <laughs> yeah. And it's basically, once they bought SAB Miller last year, now they're... Just pumping in like mid-priced, calling beer all over Africa, especially South Africa. The because it has South Africa has a lot of money, and they drink a lot of beer, so they're trying to get. And they got that cultural yeah. connection to Carling, anyways. Yeah. So that's it's this article from Reuters is basically just about how AB InBev is, like I said, just starting to just to pump beer in in Africa all as much as humanly possible. And when you got you know Reuters starting to take notice of the beer industry, there's definitely a little bit of economic impact going to be yeah. taking place off of this. So it's always interesting to see new markets get cracked open. It's a real shame to see them be the ones to do it, especially with rising craft uh, craft beer industries starting to really crop up in countries yeah. all over the world. Africa, you know, for a variety of reasons, is one of those places where it's still just kind of getting going. So it would be nice to see that take off a little more. Yeah. And my next article is also from the UK. Said the morning adv- advertiser. There was a discussion a talk by an industry consultant slash professional in marketing about how the title of the article is Offer Customers a Point of Difference to Protect On-Trade. And basically, On-Trade is the same thing as on-premise. This is what we call on-premise in the United States. Those crazy Brits. So they're basically what's happening is, whereas in the United States, the on-premise is taken off, and that's what's driving a lot of the growth in craft beer. In the UK on-premise is dying quickly, and the pub culture is dying, and a lot of people are just going to buying cans of beer and sitting at home. And so this discussion is just how brewers and tap rooms have to provide some kind of point of difference because on-premise is a little bit more expensive, but to provide a bit more of a uh, some kind of point of difference between the beer you get that you buy at your grocery store and take home and the beer you <coughs> buy at the pub and hang out and drink and have fun. So, And I know, you know, the English millennial culture has drifted towards a lot of the same things that American millennial culture has. They, they value innovation. They value a uh, kind of rotation and, and novelty. So you got this strong pub culture that's been the same for the last 200 years. I can see how that wouldn't necessarily appeal to the next generation, uh, especially when a lot of those places, you know, they have, do you want the light or the dark? These are your beer yeah. options. <laughs> they might have Guinness and they might have a cider if they're uh, really stretching, especially down the west side. But 
yeah, it, it, it's it's a shame to see that happen too because I love a good English pub. Yeah, and actually, uh, one of the places I went to in Denver is actually kind of it's run by Brits and they do cascales and it has a nice English pub feel. I really like it. Go ahead and call them out. Hogshead Brewing, and I will talk about them more when I get to my recommendations. Oh, there, there we go. Yeah, I know. I know you make sure to send me a picture every time you go to Denver of that tap <laughs> room. Ryan, does the article talk about why the shift? Um, yeah, it, basically just the price point of buying canned beer and okay. the price point and the ease of you go and go. Like, yeah, like here, you go to the grocery store, you buy your beer, you sit at home, and you can watch whatever sporting event or movie you want to. I feel like big screen TVs and streaming services have been the death knell of a lot of these industries. Like, they were really what had a negative effect. I mean, they killed arcades in the 90s, and that was even when a big screen TV qualifies like 25 inches. (laughs) So (laughs) it didn't take long for them to really start affecting movie theaters. Now they're just affecting really kind of anything where people have to leave their house. You have so much good stuff in your house, it's really kind of hard to justify spending extra money to go out. Well, if you think about uh, a place like the Harris Teeter, larger grocery chains 10 years ago you did not have the selection of craft beer available in that store that you would have i mean you know they rival any good bottle shop they you know the specialists like the new stores have complete beer and wine sections that are heavily stocked with local craft and regional craft so yeah and some of them even have full out bars full out bars yeah which which there's an experience there's nothing like you know shopping for you know your deodorant and your you know, fried chicken at the same time that you're sitting there holding the pint in your hand. Oh, I've been, I, it's good stuff. I was yeah, I can say, get behind I've, that experience. <laughs> I've read that they're disrupting even the, the restaurant industry because you can go in, get a little grocery shopping done, have a pint while you're waiting for your prepared, you know, Harris Teeter's got yeah. those, like a prime rib special. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. out of there for 20 bucks. And I'll say, home. like, Publix, man, Publix sandwiches are legit. Right. Like, I go there for lunch a decent bit of the time, and, and it's it's weird to go into a grocery store and feel like, yeah, no, this is my favorite sandwich shop, but it, it's pretty it's yeah. comparatively high up on the list, which is just kind of a funny experience and definitely a change even just in my own life. Yeah, I think, yeah that's one of the things, like, uh, was it? I was, it was one Sunday I was in the Harris Teeter over in Myers Park, and I had to go upstairs to get some Sunday, so I was going to get chips and stuff sitting home and watch the game but the bar was full the panthers were playing at one o'clock oh the one at myers yeah. park stays full are yeah. you kidding me <laughs> <laughs> that's the upstairs one right yep oh yeah no yeah travis who used to run that one man that place used to be packed every night they had regulars <laughs> imagine that having regulars at a grocery store bar right yeah the guy who uh, owns the bottle shop i work at the same thing he used yeah, to run the yeah. one uh, down in ballantyne and yeah, for the, for those of you outside the uh, the Carolina area, by the way, uh, Harris Teeter's basically Kroger. I don't, I don't think I need to really yeah. dive in much further no, than no, that. Yeah, everybody knows yeah. Kroger. They're owned by Kroger. Yeah, they yeah. literally are Kroger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what else you got for us, Ryan? Oh, after five years, Schmaltz sells New York Brewery to single-cut beersmiths. Yeah, that was intriguing to see. Yeah. It's uh, A lot of people kind of read that as, oh, Schmaltz has been making beer for five years. No, they've been making beer forever, man. Like I think 96 was when they first yeah. started putting beer out to market. They're a lot more uh, kind of OG in the craft beer scene than a lot of people realize, especially up in the Northeast. Yeah, but they bought in, they bought the land and built a um, brewery, <coughs> kind of in like the, was it like the Clifton Park, I yeah, think. Park, yeah, because yeah. they've been doing contract brewing up to that point. And that's a little more what they're aiming to go back to. They're not yeah. going to be giving up brewing. You're still going to be able to get Hebrew, and as long as I can still get my uh, Lenny's uh, uh, Rye Lenny's IPA, Park, yeah. I'm I'm all right with that. But yeah, it's yeah. an interesting shift in model. But you know, they literally just built this place five years ago, and now they're having to sell it because, yeah. Well, it is getting sold to another brewery. Yeah, so it, 
you know, it's still sh- showing industry growth, just uh, not necessarily in a direction that's yeah. super conducive to them. But yeah, it's just another one of those. Luckily, no, there's not been any. There was no accompanying the sky is falling to this article, which I was happy to see. Basically, it's just yeah, this is business. Schmaltz built a large facility that they can no longer really sustain. Sustain, and they're going to sell it. Okay. Well, they next story. Did yeah, yeah. <laughs> they did good enough to build up the Coney Island brand big enough to get Boston Beer Company to buy it a few years ago. Yeah, so they, they they've had a lot of success. Yeah. Just you know, sometimes having an on premise location or, or a uh, you know an on site location to actually produce the product isn't always the best idea. I mean, it usually is. Uh, you're not having to really pay the leasing fee and everything, yeah. but you know you're saving yourself on all that equipment. What you don't often see is people planning to go back to contract brewing yeah. after already getting the facility. Yeah. And speaking of things closing. The gold rush is over. It's getting tougher for Denver breweries to survive. Denver's coming up a lot today. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see. Yeah. Burl Beer Company in Denver is closing their doors pretty soon. And actually, it's funny because we actually drove by it, and they were still open when we drove by, but we went to another brewery. <laughs> we went to another brewery, which might be kind You're of You're part the of the problem, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just this article is basically using Barrel as the... I guess the canary in a coal mine of, yeah, we've not, especially the writer does a good job of saying this is not the end of the craft beer boom. The sky's not falling, but that we have reached a saturation point, even in Denver, where there is a, again, kind of like the article from the UK, you do have to figure out what makes you different and why should people come drink beer at your place as opposed to the place two blocks away. And I feel like yeah. that's a subject that's going to come up again today as we're talking about cideries. You know, differentiation yeah. is extremely important, yeah. uh, and especially in an industry like craft beer in Denver, which is an ex- not not necessarily a fully saturated market, but it's, it's pretty, pretty close. damn close. Yeah. yeah, being able to make yourself stand out and giving people a reason to come to you instead of going to one of the other hundred and some odd breweries yeah. that are within the city, yeah. it's hard to do, but it's vital to do. Yeah, and I think it's and it goes. That's one of those things that when you're starting a brewery, you have to. And starting any business, you have to figure out what differentiates you from the other businesses that are doing the same thing. And I don't think, I don't think craft brewers or have done a good job of that in a lot of cases. Where it's just like we make beer and we like beer, we're going to open a brewery. That's all it takes, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As long as I'm making half decent beer, people will totally come around. That, that's uh, that's the reason why the largest brewer on the planet makes terrible beer. <laughs> Finally, from the Thrillist, Craft Beer's new diversity ambassador talks about whether the industry can change. And it's just an interview with, um, should I get her name right again, this time, as opposed to last time? <laughs> we, we've talked about her like six times on the show. You, yeah. You'd think that we'd have this down by now. Yeah. Dr. J. Nicole Jackson Beckham. Yeah, it's basically it's just an interview with her of what, of kind of what she and the diversity committee are planning on doing for the next year or so. And it's just a really good. I mean, if you've read anything about her so far, you it's kind of not a rehash, but she kind of goes over the same things she said in a few other um, interviews I've read with her just about how the goal is, their first goal is to basically listen to brewers, you know, brewery owners, craft beer drinkers, and try to figure out what diversity actually means for craft beer and also try to figure out, you know, just how they want to approach pushing diversity at the brewery level on the yeah on the business side of craft beer as opposed to just the 
drinking cider craft beer. Yeah, live what you're preaching at, yeah. the, at from a certain standpoint. Yeah, and basically, and one of the things she does talk about is try not to make it like when you cast this as a problem, you start saying whose fault is it, and that's not very useful. No, so, you're not going to yeah. get any actual productive work out of that. All you can do is work towards making it better. Yeah. So just another good interview to see. Kind and of, she's continued yeah. to just kind of roll out fantastic interview and fantastic yeah. point time and time again. I, I think they really found a gem in her. Yeah. Then well, before you touch the Infante article, because yeah, I only got go. the one today, so and that's going to derail <laughs> stuff, I can just guarantee. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Craft Freedom, it's the uh, lawsuit, well, it's the group here in North Carolina that's responsible for trying to fight the 25,000 barrel self distribution cap within the state of North Carolina. Give you guys some background in case you haven't been keeping up on it. Uh, essentially, here in the state of North Carolina, if you want to distribute your beer uh, yourself, you have up to 25,000 barrels of production in a given year to go ahead and do so. After that, you have to go with a wholesaler. Uh, they tried to work through some laws and some bills uh, through the state Senate to try and get that changed, to try and create an environment where businesses could take their fate into their own hands. Got shot down, and a lawsuit followed. It's uh, headed up by Noda Brewing Company and Old Mecklenburg Brewing Company right here in Charlotte. And Red Oak. And, uh, no, actually. Not- yeah, that is a very common misconception. And oh. if the controller for our old mech, uh, John, hears you say that, he'll he'll slap you upside the face <laughs> like he did me. Uh, <laughs> so no, it's uh, headed by uh, headed and funded by Noda and Old Mac, but it is supported by a lot of the other large uh, self distributed breweries within the industry. Uh, essentially, they're arguing that this poses an unconstitutional. Uh, cap upon their ability to self-determine their business's future. And they have a pretty decent argument uh, from a moral standpoint. I think most people both within and without the industry that don't work for a wholesaler at least can relate to where they're coming from. One way or the other, they took this to court and a panel of uh, judges wound up allowing it to pass forward. Yeah. The wholesalers wanted to have it dismissed and it, it wound up being allowed to go through. So it's basically just moving on to the next step. So it'll be interesting to see where that takes us in the coming months. I think it's a good idea to let it go forward because, and I think probably what the reasoning for the panel of judges is they need to figure out what the limits and the extent of the three-tiered laws are here in North Carolina and how much the ABC and the state government can curb or affect producers of alcohol in North Carolina. And honestly, when you have a, a pair of producer or a pair of suppliers who are suing the state, I don't think it's going to do any harm to allow them to at least argue the case in yeah. front of the court. Yeah. Yeah. So that's being allowed to go through. So go ahead, shoot with this uh, Dave Infante article. Uh, Jay, Brian, did you guys see this at all? Article relating to brewer pay within the craft beer industry? Oh, yes, I did, actually. Yeah, it kind of yeah. created a bit of a rift within the industry in approximately like 24 hours. So. Yeah. Yeah. Craft beer's moral high ground doesn't apply to its workers. And it, the article basically goes exactly where you would think an article with that title would go. And, yeah. Um... How do I want to say that? I think in the broader point. Well, describe the points that yeah. he's attempted okay, to make, yeah. just a little say for people who haven't necessarily read the article. Basically, it is that <coughs> workers in the craft beer industry do not get paid enough money for all the work that they do, is the general gist of it. And he goes in and he talks to um, a guy who was a former brewer for. Um, a brewery in Eugene, Oregon, and the guy and says he worked 65 hours a week and he only made $40,000. Yeah. 
you know, as a, a highly paid professional podcaster, I can't relate to this at all. <laughs> yeah, and in, you know, basically, and that's pretty much the gist of the article is that there's a lot of money in craft beer, and someone is making this money, but it's not the people who are working in craft beer. And that's kind of where it sounds good. It (laughs) sounds like he's got so many good points. But that's kind of where I have the 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 (laughs) argument. I think the argument is rather specious because it assumes it. Yes, there's a lot of money being produced by craft beer, but I don't think there's a lot of money being made by people in craft beer. That would be correct. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'll be however someone who hasn't been paid in three years. I yep. can vouch for that. So. And, and that was kind of the point that we made. Yeah. I mean, I know that I posted a response piece on my blog. I know I'm, I'm far from alone on that, and it's really yeah. kind of created a divide. A lot of the brewers are really kind of standing up and saying, yeah, we should, you know, stand up for a rise. This article's got a lot of good points. But the question is, if the, yes, brewers <laughs> do not get paid probably what they should, given the amount of work that they do. But have you ever asked an owner of a craft brewery, craft cidery, uh, craft distillery what they make? <laughs> Because most of them are either not paying themselves, a lot of them still have to keep their day jobs, a lot of them are making as much or less than their their brewers. And, I, and to credit to the, a lot of the brewers, a lot of them are perfectly aware of that, and they're they're uh, very much aware of the fact that they chose to enter this industry. Kind of the point I was making is a lot of people get into craft beer as brewers, came from other industries, they didn't... You, do this straight out of college. This wasn't the job that they started in. They were in IT. They were accountants. They, I don't know, they were mechanics. They worked a variety of other professional careers and decided that they wanted to make a change and they wanted to do something that they were passionate about. It, ask any professional chef. Sometimes if you want to do something like that, you're going to work long hours and you're not necessarily going to get paid what you probably should be. But that doesn't necessarily mean that someone's doing you wrong it's just the nature of working in a small business. And it's really kind of sent these shockwaves throughout the industry, which is a shame because if you read some of his other work, the man is a very good writer, but he's really good. I think you said it before the show, Ryan, (laughs) that he's really good at clickbait. He's really good at getting people to read and talk about his articles, but most of them either misunderstand the industries that they're referring to or, you know, are really relying on kind of tangential logic. Yeah. And it's, and you made the good point that a lot of like of the all the money that is being generated in craft beer is generated by first of all it's being generated by mostly small businesses who can't afford to you know pay, pay more and, and this is why I'll never be stupid enough to open a craft cidery <laughs> <laughs> and smart move very smart move and a lot of the numbers <laughs> are being thrown off by Sierra Nevada and Oscar Blues and yeah the waiting on it yeah. is definitely yeah. misleading it's yeah I was going to say there's there's plenty that are quote unquote craft that are large that are making some good money yeah and then there's us you know on small <laughs> scale relatively new who would love to pay our employees more yeah, you know, we'd well, love to do that. I'd wait, to wait, wait, Br- Brian! You and Ken Grossman at Sierra Nevada aren't on equivalent levels of of yeah. making money. That, this this <laughs> is all. This is an awfully big surprise to me. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> that's actually where I had the biggest problem with this article. Is like you comparing like at one point he compares how much you make it as a brewer at an AB InBev mm-hmm. plant with to a small local brewery. Like, that no, 
That's keep in mind no. the people who are working at ABI they haven't really fired any brewers they fired fired a ton of other people yeah. but they're, they're still the still got the same number of brewers yeah. they're still all making the same money and and yeah you just have more people who are able to live their dream of being brewers these days and yeah you might have to take a pay cut but you have to decide for yourself if that's something that's going to be worthwhile for yeah. you and like I said at the broader point that yeah you know, everyone should be paid more pretty much any. In the service industry. Matter of fact, yeah. if we're all just going to line up and ask to be paid more, I'd really like to, <laughs> to get at the front yeah. of that line. Yeah. Everyone in the service industry, from hotels to restaurants to craft breweries, <coughs> probably should be paid more. But, especially with restaurants and craft breweries, those are small businesses, and there's... Money's got to come from yeah. somewhere. That's a, <laughs> yeah. I would love to just keep printing it out, but... You know, well, and, and to compare an AB plant with, with a, a small brewery is is the same as comparing you know craft a craft food manufacturing plant with a small deli i mean it, yeah. it just doesn't compare i mean while yeah. they are technically some really <laughs> really good brewers because they make very consistent product i mean that is industrial manufacturing it's not the it's a whole different beast yeah different and those beast. economies of scale i mean they're Absolutely. making a lot more money per brewer on staff that's just the nature of it yeah, yeah. so i mean that's the reason if you work for a small mom and pop CBA firm you're not going to make as much as if you work for Deloitte and Tush. Right. Wow, you managed to tie this into accounting. You picked the <laughs> driest <laughs> subject. I'm married to an accountant and I wouldn't even gone to ca- accounting, oh, man. I spent the both plane rides reading basic accounting. So, yeah, that's why my mind is in accounting right now. <laughs> Welcome to Between the CPAs, uh, <laughs> your source for the business side of accounting. <laughs> All right, so I think that's all we got for brew news today. Uh, Ryan, what was the first cider that you ever had? Do you remember? Woodchuck draft cider. Woodchuck, really? uh, Even down here, because I know for me it was the same thing, Woodchuck. I was living in Rhode Island at the time, being a Vermont-based business. You know, Woodchuck was kind of everything there was. Even after Angry Orchard rolled out, it was still definitely kind of predominant. Not so much anymore. That's (laughs) been a brand in flux. But for a lot of people, that was kind of their first touch point, either that or Angry Orchard with cider and for a lot of people they could be excused for thinking that cider is a fairly recent invention you know this newfangled fermented apple juice boy it's a good thing somebody got that wise idea to ferment that stuff you could get from mots (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but a lot of people don't realize just how much history is behind this beverage i mean when america was in its infancy you know or early america we weren't a nation of beer drinkers as shocking as that can be for a lot of people in this age of you know adjunctlated imperial stouts and ipas we're a nation who preferred whiskey because, well, let's be honest, it's damn efficient, <laughs> especially if you're trying to get a good buzz on you know, early in the morning to do your farm work. Uh, and a nation of cider, especially in the northern states where they had climates that were a little more conducive to orchards and to apple growth. Uh, and that, those conditions kind of continue for a long time. For a lot of America's early history, it really was all cider and all whiskey all the time. And they were kind of considered the national drink in a lot of ways. Thomas Jefferson, as much as people like to talk about you know, his historical beer recipes and him sending uh, one of his slaves over to France to learn uh, traditional, or to Germany rather, to learn traditional beer making methods, a lot of people don't realize that the man was also extremely passionate about cider. He had favorite varietals he, he had apple trees on his property this this was part of the tapestry of america so for a lot of people they look at that and they say well what happened and a huge part of what happened was in between 1820 and 1870 a whole lot of freaking german immigrants came to america <laughs> including my ancestors uh, and to give you a, a bit of a frame of reference i'm not talking about 
you know, a lot of Germans. I'm talking about literally doubling the population of the yeah. U.S. over the course of about 50 years. Uh, we're talking about seven and a half million German immigrants in that time period. So that's a huge influx. And there's not a strong cider culture in Germany like there was among the English immigrants who came over here, uh, kind of with the original batch of, you know, American originals. No, it's, uh, they brought with them their beer culture. They brought with them a lot of that lagering culture, and they brought with them their tastes and preferences from their homeland. And with that, America, especially as industrial-scale production, was proving to be a lot easier for beer than it was necessarily for cider production, really saw beer start to take off. And from that point forward, you start seeing the rise of companies like Anheuser-Busch. Uh, you see a little further down the line, things like the Coors Company. Uh, Miller was a little after that. But, yeah, you start seeing a lot of these companies start to spring up in short order. Yingling, same case. Yeah. Uh, beer from that point really started to push, especially cider, a little more to the back end. And it started to be treated a little more like a wine product or a little more like a country product. You know, it started to be seen as a little rustic, but it was still there. And then the thing happened that really kind of radically changed the alcohol industry in America for everybody, you know, prohibition. I don't think we've ever mentioned that on the show before. Uh, so with prohibition, a lot of these, uh, you know, more processing-based and more production-based cideries began to see the demand. The, well, they couldn't make hard cider anymore, so a lot of them closed the doors. And a lot of the orchards were left with, you know, this situation where they had apple trees, they had orchards. What did they do with it? So a lot of them were forced to start producing what we now refer to as culinary dessert apples, what a lot of people think of just as apples these days. You know, we're talking about the Galas, the Empires, the, you know, Granny Smiths, the Red Delicious. And these really started to become in the public mindset what an apple was and what an apple was for. And a lot of people just forgot the fact that a type of cider that you weren't drinking mold on, you know, a nice October evening was not the only thing that ever existed really took until the 80s before some of these orchards started to rediscover hard cider, rediscover traditional cider apples, and really try to make the changes to go ahead and at least give this a try again. You know, uh, with the kind of collapse of the, the East Coast, especially uh, apple industry due to competition with the West Coast as well as South America and some aggressively marketed imports, you started seeing a lot of these East Coast cideries uh, reinvesting in cider simply as a way to do something with their apples. They, they had all these apples left over, and it takes a whole lot more apples to make a pint of cider than it does to necessarily just you know stick in your mouth and take a bite. So it gave them a way of turning that into something monetizable. And you know this began to continue. It was treated a lot more like wine at the time with a focus on terroir, geography, and you know, it was still fairly largely focused upon the actual original orchards where the apples were grown. really wasn't until craft beer really started taking off uh, especially in the early 2000s, but even going back into the 90s, that the cider industry started taking some hints from that kind of nascent industry and realizing that uh, some of these production-based facilities, they belong in there the same way that those orchard-based facilities do as well, and starting to take some notes from that, both in the marketing and the attitude and just the uh, uh, eye towards the future and an eye towards innovation within the industry. 
And that's kind of left us where we are today. So when people see something like Woodchuck or see something like Angry Orchard, they're not looking at an innovator of something necessarily, you know, brand new. The Woodchuck does have a decent amount of history behind it. They're looking at the culmination of a lot of American history and a lot of American beverage history and something that is a lot more complex and nuanced than people realize. It's one of the things that got me into cider. It, it, a lot of ways it kind of bridges that gap between wine and beer while still having a whole lot to offer that's entirely unique to itself. So, Jay, Brian, appreciate you guys being on the show and allowing me to ramble for the last 30 minutes. <laughs> How are you guys doing today? We're doing good. good. Good to hear. Good to hear. So, uh, Jay, I'll, I'll start with you a little bit. Sure. Uh, so you come from Michigan, and I know you have a, a bit of a homebrewing background yourself. Uh, I know you definitely split a little bit of time between cider and beer originally, but you know, your, your background being from Michigan, that's a state that's well-known for its apple production, also well-known for its taste for hard, hard cider. Tell me a little about how you decided to enter into this crazy industry uh, and really decided to kind of take a risk and roll the dice on it. Well, it uh, it started basically pretty early on in my fermentation hobby. Um, probably that's I, a good way of putting being yes. a professional drunk. I like that. Yes. Um, the first uh, the first things I fermented were mostly fruit wines and things like that back in uh, 1997. Uh, upon returning from, uh, I'd been stationed overseas in Sicily for one of my last duty stations, and then when I got back to the states, uh, hooked up with a buddy. And started home winemaking, and we were brewing batches of beer in between the batches of wine because they take a little <laughs> longer. And one of the fruit wines that uh, ended up being made at one point was an apple, uh, an apple wine, and that was truly a, you know, like an 11 percent. We capitalized it, added sugar to it on the front end so that it would get higher alcohol. And some of the bottles ended up sparkling, uh, ended up refermenting in the bottle, and so that was really like the first something cider-like that I had made. And it just kind of grew from there. When I got out of the Navy, moved back to Michigan, had access to free apples, and just kind of started from there. And over the years, it's grown to uh, myself and a couple uh, buddies. Still every year in November, make about 300 gallons of home cider uh, from apples. And I need better friends. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just that experience over you know, 15, 20 years that gave me the confidence to to be able to turn this into a business. Well, glad to hear you decided to pick this up right before opening your own business, not like you had more than a decade of experience <laughs> at it or anything. <laughs> yeah. So, Brian, tell me a little about your background. I know you're originally from Vermont, but I know a lot of people, at least in this area, know you more from the Carolina Brewmasters. You've had a long history there. How did you decide to go from uh, having a large presence, and, and uh, you were the president, right, of the Carolina Brewmasters for a while? Three years, yes. Three, three yeah, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> How did you go from that to deciding to enter into the cider industry? Well, I, uh, I started home brewing back in 94, so I've been at this a long time as well. I uh, just did beer for years and years. Uh, Woodchuck was also my first cider <laughs> growing up in Vermont and had one and didn't have a cider for many, many, many years after that. So. <laughs> Uh, but it, my my journey to cider was a, a little simpler than Jay's in that I was reading a beer magazine one day, and there was an article on how to make cider. And it, the essence of a four-page article was take a bucket or a carboy, add juice, add yeast, shake it, walk away, and you're done. And you were like, boy, I would love to do the easier thing. I was like, I'm an idiot. <laughs> I can pull this off. So I, I did it. I used uh, an English cider yeast. Uh, which had a little funkiness to it, nice and dry, and just fell in love with it. 
and that was just the beginning of, of my journey because then I started experimenting with different yeasts. Uh, I, as people know who know me or know Good Road, we like them dry, so we that's our path. <laughs> um, we do make some a little sweeter, but you know, in a, any day of the week, I'm going to choose a drier cider over something else. And uh, from there, it was just experimenting and then going out and talking to other cideries. You know, there's some great cideries in, in Virginia going up and tasting their product and seeing their, getting a, an opportunity to taste their single varietals, their blends, the different yeast that they use. Um, you know, cider is like beer in that you can do whatever you can do to a beer, you can do to a cider, whether it's adding fruit, hops, spices, barrel aging. So we have just as much flexibility as the brewers. Our base product is just a different animal to start. Yeah, you guys have a few fewer ingredients to work with, so there's a few... You don't have the option necessarily of malt, hops, yeast. Well, you do have the option of hops, so you, you're, you're yeah. missing about one ingredient, so there are a few less exponential office options right on the surface, but just the sheer varietals uh, that are out there and the amount that blending can really kind of coax these incredible flavors out of each one. For a lot of people at home, when they think of uh, cider, I'm, or when they think of apples in general, I'm sure they're really thinking a lot of the more sweeter varieties. And in American cider, especially modern American cider, those are still what kind of drives a day just because there's not a whole lot of sources of traditional cider apples. Right. But being able to coax some, you know, tanniny qualities, being able to coax a little more acid out of the, the apples that you're using and get something that still has a decent amount of depth to it. A lot of people who's only experienced with cider, some of the more mass-produced varieties, I'm sure they don't even realize just how much complexity this can have and i kind of liken it to to wine like a lot of people are familiar with the idea that wine can have an enormous amount of depth in spite of essentially at its core being you know grape Grapes. juice and yeast <laughs> that's really about it well and if you think about uh cider apples and even some culinary fruit as well i mean th there are culinary fruits that have certain characteristics you can think of all those apples cider specific varieties especially it's the same as having a malt bill. I mean, if you choose these four apples, just like you choose these four malts, you're going to get a certain style of cider. Same thing with a wine grape. You know, a Kingston Black, you can equate that to a Cabernet Sauvignon grape. I mean, you, there are characteristics that people seek out of that apple just like they do with that grape. So, Yeah, and that gives you an enormous amount of flexibility. Uh, Brian, you especially, I know, have, you know, at the risk of sounding blunt, have been well known to have some very strong opinions on what cider is, what it should be, and more importantly, what it could be. Uh, you both have a little more modern style production cideries. You know, you guys focus on taking apples that are sourced from other locations and finding good blends and finding quality craftsmanship to turn those apples into something truly special. Uh, tell me a little bit about kind of your philosophy of cider, because within the industry itself, there's really kind of a divide right now, which is, you know, they've got a lot of gray area within it, but you do have some of these more traditional orchard-based cideries who really kind of see it as being a wine, and they really want single varietal and terroir to be really the entirety of what it's about. And you have some of these more modernist cideries who are placing so much focus on just the finished product and being able to blend and innovate. Uh, do you see there being a, a, a preferential side, at least for you personally, or do you really see it as being all uh, places along the spectrum of what cider is and really can include? Well, I think it, it varies. As I said, you know, I like them dry. That's just, that, that is my preference. I've judged cider with you <clears throat> at competition. I've, I've noticed that very, yeah. <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> and you said, I, I, there's no secret about it. But, 
you also have to work with what you're given. You know, we have a couple orchards we work with here in North Carolina. We have orchards that we work with, or one orchard up in, uh, in Virginia, and then one in New Hampshire. And Mother Nature helps dictate things. You know, we will, uh, our, I think a great example is our single varietal Newtown Pippin. The, uh, back in 2017, when we intro that was, had a lot of pineapple and peach components, a nice spiciness to it. This year, same apple from the same orchard, but a different year of weather underneath it. And our, that cider tastes completely different. It's still dry, but it's, it's uh, much more citrusy, much more lemon and orange components to it. So I'm sure, I know Jay does the same thing. When we get a batch of juice in, whether it's already a, a blend or it's our Newtown or our Gold Rush or Limber Twigs or whatever, you know, we taste it. We we try to figure out where it may, may go as through, through the fermentation process. And with that, from our experience, we'll choose which yeast we're going to use or maybe we'll split the batch and use a couple different yeasts and then depending on how those turn out we can blend them down the road we can keep them separate you know so there is there is a lot of flexibility from that standpoint so have you guys seen that the consumers have really shown an acceptance for the fact that there will be these kind of incremental and and you know subtle but profound differences from crop to crop and just the difference that can make even in something that you guys are kind of marketing as being the same cider? Yeah, I, I personally have, but it, it's been a... Do you think that comes down to just the ignorance of the average consumer's palate? Or you, I know a lot well, of people, they, they enjoy what they enjoy, but they're not, they're not like all four of us geeks sitting here around a table who are necessarily sitting here like, oh, this is very tannin. No, they, uh, <laughs> they tend to just right. enjoy it and drink it. Or do you think they really are noticing these differences, but appreciate them for what they are? I mean, I think I think they notice them, but they're noticing them mostly because of cideries like ours and Brian's. Because if you look at what most of the cider is on the shelf out there, or has been at least in the 10 years leading up to this point that we've got this explosion of small craft cideries, it's been a very consistent uh, product that tastes the same every time, just like some of the large industrial brewers. And we talked about product. this on so, a previous episode is just how weird it is that, you know, we talk about craft beer pretty much all day, every day. And within the craft beer industry, it's pretty well-defined who the big bully of the industry is. It, it's Anheuser-Busch and Bev, and they are an entirely separate category from the rest of the beer industry, and they really do kind of stand head and shoulders above and push a lot of people around. Within Cider, Angry Orchard makes one of our own. <laughs> a craft brewery-owned cidery makes a, makes up a third of all cider sales in the U.S. Uh, they make about 530,000 barrels a year. That is an absolutely astronomical number. Right. And this is all within an industry that's only about $770 million. So it, it's really amazing that you guys are kind of butting up against the exact same problem just on a smaller scale with these large cideries who they're going for an industrial consistent product but one that's not necessarily showing that craft and that love that you're seeing out of the smaller cideries right and so that's it's up to brian and i and our staff and everything every chance we have to be in front of the consumer whether it's at a festival or giving a tour in our facility or the bartender behind the bar educating the person that's never had cider before their only experience has been a large industrial cider we've got 10 ciders up on the board 
can you tell me about them? And, it, and it's our job to educate them. And when they come back in again, and it might have a little bit of a difference, say, in, you know, like our cherry cider is going to be fairly consistent from batch to batch because that's a, that's a different process. But when you're talking about just a, a base cider or something that's got very little to no back sweetening in it, you are tasting the raw cider. The character of the apple. And it changes from batch to batch, year to year, like Brian has seen and like I've seen. So it's our job to educate people on why that is and why you don't see it on an industrial scale. Yeah, and I think people, especially people who like wine, who are drinking ciders, when you explain to them, yeah. this is like your Cabernet <coughs> that you've been drinking for 20 years, and every year it's still a Cabernet, but the nuances are a little bit different. That's the same thing we experiment. Yep. We are a winery, but instead of grapes, we deal with apples. Yeah, and that's part of what's so exciting about cider is the fact that you guys really do have a lot of the same com, uh, concepts, that purity of ingredient that you do see out of a winery while still having so much room for innovation and room to play around with the product like you would see out of a craft brewery. It really does leave you guys in that position to do so much with it. And I urge people, I mean, I've been to both of your facilities, Ryan. I know yeah. you've been to both of their facilities as well. Your tap rooms are absolutely beautiful, both of them with, you know, very distinct feels as well, which I think is very, very important, showing that there's no such thing as just a, you know, rank and file cidery. They each do have their own unique character. And for anybody who, you know, has been holding off going to a cidery because they got that one friend who just doesn't like cider, for, for one, most cideries, like a lot of, breweries will have a cider on tap most cideries will have a beer or two on tap a guest taps but more importantly than that i think it's important for them to realize that their their friends or their own experience with cider has probably just been a bad experience with cider you saw so many people who were turned off from craft beer initially because well i don't like hops well there's so many other options um and whether or not sours are the only thing you like or porters are the only thing you like there's something out there for you and the same can be true of ciders and you guys really do produce a, a really wide range even just between the two of you and i know most other cideries they like to play as much as any of the rest of us uh, it's incredible what you're able to coax out of it. i know both of you guys do hop ciders which i personally am a huge fan of uh just again a little bit of that those aromatics from the hops can just be incredible and seeing how they play with the apple are there any other kind of innovative varieties or uh you know new concepts that you guys have really enjoyed having fun with I mean, I, I've I've really enjoyed uh, messing around with barrel aging, and and I, you know I started that way back in my homebrew uh, career as well. We got uh, got a hold of a 55 gallon barrel one year and pressed enough cider to put it in that bourbon barrel, and it was it was magical what happened in that thing. So <laughs> that's been something I've loved to 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 experiment with because cider is a very good um, canvas, I guess to to paint other flavors onto. I, I don't know if that's the right analogy, Apple goes wrong. Apple goes right with everything. Yeah, and it really does. Yeah, I was telling you guys before the show that I made the mistake this morning of my breakfast was an entire bowl of homemade gnocchi with, you know, cheese sauce. Well, I use diced apples in there, but, you know, I cook them down a little bit. I find that just goes great with everything in there. It, apples go good with everything. So it's amazing how much you're able to, to do with that within a liquid medium. Yeah, and I think yeasts and just trying to other ingredients like you're seeing a lot of uh savory ciders out there i, I just got back from uh the glint cap which is the great lakes international cider and perry competition up in uh, grand rapids michigan it's the world's largest cider competition so there were over 1500 ciders entered there and i instead of judging this year i chose to be a steward 
so you really get exposed to almost all 1500 of those ciders and it's amazing the <laughs> breadth of boy how did you feel after that oh it was uh that was we did a lot of walking <laughs> you're basically you're basically a lot of stumbling a, a, i think no actually <laughs> no you got to keep it together at least during the day but uh <laughs> but it's just amazing seeing the amount of innovation that's going on out there from from small cideries uh, that are more traditional wine style. They're even trying things with, you know, different uh, savory spices and herbs. And, you know, it's just, it's very interesting. I know West County's even been playing around with some I- innovation recently, which for those of you not following the cider industry, it's first uh, commercial cider in the U.S. since Prohibition. And when even they're starting to play around with stuff, it, it's really impressive to see that this spirit's yeah. kind of, you know, proceeding throughout the industry. Well, not that I would do this, but I actually saw, I saw a beat habanero cider and a cider made with truffles and butter i'm not gonna lie i would try both of those i'm not saying i necessarily think either will be good but i would try both of those i tried the beet habanero i got a chance to try that it was actually really that one actually sounds like it'd go a lot better to try the other Uh, (laughs) not that i wouldn't but i just did not have the opportunity yeah fungus and butter fat doesn't do it for you in your cider there jay (laughs) hey everything goes with apples That should be the new slogan. I think that, yeah. that we got an episode name. Everything yeah. goes with apples. All right, Brian, how about you? Anything you, uh, you're playing around with, just uh, innovation-wise? I would say that the biggest things we have done recently are working in tandem with the, the distilleries. So barrel aging. Uh, we, we, had our, we put our cranberry in a rum barrel from Muddy River, uh, and that came out really, really well. Uh, we are actually now uh, attempting... A cask for Duckworth's cask event this week weekend, where we're taking that one and adding brown sugar to it. Ooh! To uh, so hopefully that'll give a little little unique uh, twist and a little complexity to it. Uh, we've got a cider on right now that involves uh, we basically dry hopped, but with the gin botanicals from Doc Porter's gin. Well, so, it's a good thing I don't hate gin or anything. <laughs> now my wife uh I, me and ryan have talked about this in the past my wife drinks like an old man uh <laughs> yeah her her drink of choice is gin and tonic sometimes she'll hold the tonic so yeah she'd, she'd be all about that I'd, yeah if, can you just set aside a little of that for me so that when some baby's here you know i can show that that'll win me some brownie points to say the least there you go <laughs> so the uh, cider industry as a whole has been growing rapidly and i, I think part of that is just growing in tandem with craft beer but a lot of it is just because people are starting to discover that this is an option as far as having a preferred drink and you're seeing like you said a larger variety out there for people i know the u.s association of cider makers was founded in 2013 really kind of act as your guys' equivalent to the brewers association act as a trade group for cideries across the industry Uh, and right now there's about 800 total in the u.s which is you know a pretty astounding number considering there was only about 70 breweries in the u.s back in the 70s and the 80s so seeing a craft beer industry that's gotten up to 6,000, even if the cider industry is still down around 800 that is not only a rapid amount of exponential growth but it shows a little about how far they can go from there uh so it's really been kind of fun to watch you guys kind of see the future for cider being as bright i know uh i was reading an article said that people who favor cider over any other beverage has grown from about 1% of the drinking population to 4%, which sounds small, and it is, but that is not only an extremely large amount of objective growth over what it was, but that's still almost a 20th of the population is looking 
towards yourself, Brian, looking towards yourself, Jay, and the products that you guys make before they're reaching for anything else? Well, I, I didn't. Uh, I, this is based on statistics from last year, but like in the UK and other uh, other countries that have a you know a cider culture that never left because of prohibition or something like that. Um, Cider is somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of their total beer sale or total craft sales. It's still like one or 2% here, even though it's a very large industry, it's growing rapidly. Um, I think there's a lot of room for growth still in the cider industry. Especially given the history we have here and how, I mean, we grow a ton of apples in this country. It'd be yes, nice to see them put to you know, some use other than just in pies. Yeah, and there, you're getting more and more orchard growers growing the true cider apples, which is nice because the market is continuing to grow on the production side and having the orchard growers adding to their land the better trees or better apples for cider is only going to help the market. So Yeah, and there's a a program in a lot of states, North Carolina included, I believe it's App State and NC State here have a research plot up in Henderson County where they're testing uh, cider-specific varieties, some old heritage apples that have grown here before, and seeing what grows best here, what kind of conditions you need to grow them, and then enlisting growers to to start planting these varieties, rip out Red Delicious, rip out, uh, you know, whatever, and create a You heard that, guys, the war on Red industry. Delicious starts yes. here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I but, was actually with a grower uh, this weekend, and he said in Washington State, I mean, the, even over 10, they've just ripped out thousands and thousands of acres of those and they're planting better apples so that has been changing for a while which is a great thing for you guys as well because like we were talking if the apples are essentially the malt bill and not only that but there's even more varieties of apples than there are varieties of malt every new variety gives you guys that much more to play with it gives you that many more tools within your toolkit to make fantastic and differentiated ciders keep things interesting so to speak yeah because even even a culinary some of the culinary apples that might not have a, a, a lot of tannin, which we, you would find in the more traditional ciders, they have a lot of aromatics. They have they bring color. They bring you know there are good qualities that some of those apples still have. Beautiful. Well, you know, and you go, going back to one of your points earlier, uh, with the growth of the market, you were talking about people who may walk into our place and don't like cider. I would say nine out of ten times, the reason they don't like it is what they've had is too sweet. Oh yeah. yeah. So it's <laughs> that all, was my thoughts on cider yeah, for a so long time. So it's all time. about education, you know, and that's that's a battle yeah. that we fight every day, and just making people more and more aware of it because it's uh, it's really interesting. And I'll I'll hop back on my soapbox for <laughs> sixty <laughs> seconds. But uh, a couple months ago, I went into Harris Teeter and opened their cider cooler and stood there for ten minutes and pulled out a bottle or can of every variety of cider that was there. And the grams of sugar <laughs> per 12-ounce bottle ranged from the low end was 11 grams. The high end was 28 grams. <laughs> so I went home oh, man. and looked up how many grams <laughs> of sugar in a can of Coke. And that, I think, was 38. Yeah. Yep. So you had three-quarters of that. And then for kicks on the lower end, I went and looked up what a bowl of Frosted Flakes had. <laughs> that is 12 grams. So, oh, wow. So most of your ciders that are out there <laughs> that are not, you know, that may claim to be craft or, or made by some of the larger guys have more sugar than Frost Flakes. And, our, and I know Brian's are a lot, uh, 
almost completely dry. Our and we have also completely dry as well, but our sweetest cider is that 11, 12 grams. So, you know, there's there's plenty of sweet ciders out there. We don't feel the need to add to it. <laughs> and just like Brian uh, hinted at, you know, people come in, they've had a bad experience with cider, but I, I think you have the same experience. I, there are rarely, rarely any time that we're not able to convert somebody back into a cider. Absolutely or, correct. You know, you're you're doing God's that. work, guys. Yes, so, so, we are. <laughs> and it's been fun to watch, speaking of education, the U.S. Association, yeah, U.S. words are hard. <laughs> U.S. Association of Cider Makers, uh, they've been working on the Cider Lexicon Project, which is essentially a multi, multi-phasic plan to kind of standardize some of the language and make it easier for people, both within the cider industry and you know within wholesalers out in the market, just talking about it, to be able to speak more to cider and be able to give people kind of those talking points to where they can recognize that if something says semi-dry, it's probably going to be within a range they recognize. If it says semi-sweet and, and giving those kind of standardizations to really kind of make that education easier. I know they introduced recently the uh, CIDR certification program. Uh, as of about two days ago, I am now a uh, CIDR certified professional, uh, which has right. taught me that I know exactly enough to know that I don't know jack or shit compared to the two of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and just as important as the lexicon itself is they are starting to establish what that standard is for dry, what the standard is for semi-dry. And that means, you know, the range of sugar grams per liter, the range of acid grams per liter. But they're also starting to put out, uh, I took part in a a bit of a kind of an experiment on Saturday this past weekend where a uh, scientist put out four different uh, samples of cider, or flights of cider, with different levels of sugar and uh, tannin and acid to try and demonstrate the interactivity between all those three things and your perception of dryness <laughs> and sweetness. And it's so like we've talked about in the a lot beer of work industry, being done yeah, in that regard. Yeah. yeah, it's like we've talked in the beer industry, you know, with perceived bitterness from hops, the other flavors and the other, the levels of sweetness, the levels of, of you know, uh, phenols, tannins within beer can dramatically affect how that bitterness is actually received by your brain in spite of objective measurement. It's exactly the same thing in cider. Like yep. it, everything when it comes to flavor is a balancing act and it's important to be able to understand those interactions and it gives you guys the ability to set out to create a product rather than having a product create itself for you, which is right. important for creating something standardized as well as just for you guys to be able to, you know, achieve the goals you have in mind. Well, just yeah. to, to have that standard out there so that when someone sees dry on a bottle or a can in the grocery store, you know, it doesn't have 14 grams of sugar in it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's part of the trick is getting the, the makers to adhere to that. Right. You know, because there are, you can go to Harris Teeter and you can pull out some right now that will say dry and they have both cane sugar and brown sugar in them. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you can taste the brown sugar. So it's like, how do you do that? You yeah, that, that, so, is, that is alarming. Because there's, I mean, there's there's plenty of craft ciders that are semi-dry and medium or semi-sweet that are really well made. I mean, I will enjoy those. I've stated my preference, but you know, it's not like I think that is the only aspect of the cider world that's relevant or is good because there are a whole spectrum of tastes, of tastes yeah. and things you can do. And you, when you bring in ice ciders into the picture, that you are want some real sweet. sweet but balanced. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's amazing absolutely. what you're able to coax out of those. And 
I mean, and I feel like even a lot of people who do prefer sweet ciders, switching them to a semi-sweet, they'll almost always be happier. I mean, you get just a little bit of the the dryness, a little, just a, raise the tannins just a little, give them a little more acid, a little less sugar, and they're getting something that is still appealing to their palate while giving them a much more well-rounded and complete drinking experience. Yeah, because, I mean, a lot of the really sweet industrially made ciders to me, that's all you taste is just sweet. There's not a lot of, yeah. well. It's a medium for of, sugar, no, and that's about right, it. Right, there's no complexity there. There's no, you know. So it can, it can have flavor and complexity and still have a little sweetness. Yeah, we, we've had, we, Jay and I have been in a room with one of the guys from one of the major makers, <laughs> and we talked about doing a collaboration <laughs> with them, and there was seven or eight of us in a room, and threw around a couple ideas. What can we do where seven or eight cider makers can contribute equally and have fun doing it? This guy's contribution was water. He wanted to <laughs> add water to the cider because that's how you make your money. Aim high, buddy. And the rest of us just said no. <laughs> but that's, that is part of the process. You know I'm going to make guys. you guys tell me who that is off the air. I wouldn't ask you to do it on the air, but I, I, I okay. have to. Jay's told me Jay's told me the story, so I know who it is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that's it makes you shake your head. And unfortunately that those are the the ones that are driving the industry yeah, right driving now. Driving the industry. So we have to educate people, bring them back around and say, look, this is what a real cider should taste like, whether it's you dry mean you or shouldn't be coloring your rose cider with beet? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there are some definitely some ways that the you know, cider industry is really kind of both, A, making some enormous leaps. I mean, the Cider Act last year uh, dropped taxes pretty much across the board on anything high-grab or high-carb for you guys, which was huge for small cideries. But uh, more than that, you guys definitely have craft beer industry beat. We talk about diversity a lot on this show. And, you know, cider as opposed to beer is roughly a 50-50 split between men and women drinking it, which is uh, profound and amazing to see. We need to see more of that on, our, uh, you know, the beer side of the fence. Uh, also, more likely to be his, uh, Hispanic than craft beer drinkers, which is one of those things that I'm, I'm not even sure necessarily what the kind of market driver behind that would be. But it's interesting to see that there are these growth opportunities created by being a small, relatively young and relatively niche industry that's allowing you guys to kind of do better than craft beer did, especially within its early years. Uh, that's always fun to see. And, and I, I, I'm only taking a guess because it's anecdotal. You know, but just based on the diversity that we see in our tap room, and you mentioned uh, Hispanic population, my guess is because many came from a, a country other than this one that always had a cider culture, whether it was just around holidays or whatever. I mean, Cidra is it's in South America, it's in Spain, it's you know. So unlike here, it never went away there. Prohibition so pro ruined so it, all the fun stuff here in America. So they already come with a knowledge of cider to begin with. So, so. it's a lot easier to make that conversion because, well, they, you never had to convert them. They knew about it the whole time. Right. Beautiful. Well, again, thanks, guys, for talking a little bit about cider. If you guys do want to learn a little more about cider, please check out Cidercraft Magazine. It's kind of the uh, primary magazine and, and information source for the industry right now. You can find that at cidercraftmag.com. Uh, Jay, tell me a little bit about the actual uh, tap room itself, where people can find you guys, and if you have anything coming up around the bend. Yeah, so we're uh, we're located at 245 Clanton Road in uh, South End, Charlotte. Um, we're, it's right near the corner of South End and Clanton uh, Clanton Road, and or South Boulevard and Clanton Road rather. 
And, uh, you know, we're open Wednesday through Sunday. Um, we basically are featuring pretty much every month now at least two, if not three, small batch, uh, just very innovative um, ciders. We've we've done small batch barrel aging. We've uh, did a few small batch meads. Unlike, you know, Good Road is a, has a pretty good solid mead program. We're just kind of delving into that. But uh, one of the new ciders coming up um, would be our... Uh, blueberry ginger so that'll be uh, released we'll have our summer shandy out again shortly and we're looking at doing a small uh, small run of a session cider to see how that goes uh, one of the things that people do notice about uh, our place and Brian's I'm sure most ciders are six seven percent or more They're definitely a little higher not something <laughs> that, you know you can sit and do all day so being able to sure have something with fl- yeah. well, you can. <laughs> it's going to be a short day. Yes, but not can. with that attitude, Jay. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm just going on the feedback. I'm recommending getting, a 13% but... scrumpy later. So no, let's, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> but we'd like to do that too to kind of go back to uh, my roots because that's what I was making in the beginning. But, uh, but yeah, we just we continue to put out uh, a new seasonal uh, every quarter, small batch, and um, we uh, we do feature other regional ciders and lo- local craft beer as well. Good Road Cider Works is located at 117 Southside Drive. We are right down the street from our friends at uh, Old Mac and Sugar Creek Brewing. So if you visit them, walk on down to the other side of the street and pop into our place. Uh, Having grown up in Vermont and around farms and all that, when you walk into our place, uh, you see a lot of reclaimed barn wood, uh, a couple barn doors that separate our event space from the tap room. So you definitely get some of that New England farm type feel. Uh, as far as new products, our peach is coming back. Uh, we'll be reintro this Saturday for Memorial Day weekend. It was a big hit last year, and people have been asking about it for a couple months now. Uh, one of our more sweeter options, which was very popular last year, North Meat South, which was a uh, combination of New Hampshire apples with uh, North Carolina apples, is back on. It was delicious. Yeah. And a slight twist this year in that the ferment started wild. So oh, there's that's a always fun. smoky little tannin to it, and then this uh, little sweetness to it, and then the tannins from the uh, the New Hampshire apples. So, uh, like Jay, we're starting to experiment with a couple smaller batches. The gin, you know, you're gonna have to come in soon. I know your your wife can't drink it right now, but that's gonna be gone soon because that's a small batch. She, I, I'll make sure I give her a nice little sip, and then she'll force me to drink the rest. So it's just keep the North Meat South on hands for me to wash it down with. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah, and uh, so we'll we'll continue that. And as GHJ said, we've got Kevin and Rob doing meads for us, and they do a heck of a job. So um, we just continue to uh, try to educate the marketplace on what a true good cider is. And uh, like Jay, I mean, we have people come to our place, and we will send them to Red Clay. Yep. And I know they do the same, so it's, you know, strength in numbers. And we're very gifted in the state of North Carolina, and, and even just in the Charlotte area. We have three cideries just in greater Charlotte, and, the, you know, between North and South Carolina, there's a decent number of options, and it's, it's, it's nice to see. We hope to see, you know, nothing but you guys continuing to grow, continuing to do well, and more of that awareness coming around. Uh, Ryan, let's go ahead and start with the cider recommendations today, as far as the recommendations part of the show is concerned. I'll let you go. So actually did not have any cider walls in Denver, so I'm, unfortunately I'm unprepared for that recommendation today. You should feel ashamed of yourself. <laughs> what's, what's really important is that you feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So what I'm going to go ahead and recommend today is actually the Crooked Cock Scrumpy from Portland Cider Company. Not only does it have a hilarious name, but is absolutely fantastic. Say, uh, for people who don't necessarily know what a scrumpy is, it's uh, kind of a nebulous term, but the general gist of it is more of a farmhouse cider using unselected apples. So, you know, kind of the rough apples, the ones that you're not necessarily picking for their highest quality. You're just kind of taking the, uh, you know, the by the bushel leftovers and fermenting them usually to a fairly high and very dry still alcohol level to kind of create something that's got an enormous amount of depth and an enormous amount of alcohol that way even if it doesn't taste good you're not going to care much afterwards uh, <laughs> but the uh the crooked cock is uh, you know it, it was absolutely fantastic it was actually the first grumpy i ever had i'm re- making kind of a way beyond the point recommendation on this one i actually had for the first time about a year and a half ago my wife and i went to uh portland oregon for her birthday and Really, he just had an excellent time. We went there mostly to visit the breweries, but wound up parking ourselves directly across the street in an Airbnb from Portland Cider Company and spent a whole lot of time in their tap room. And I was really just taken by something that could have a little of that bite, have that real nice, dry, tanniny finish, uh, but still get so much character of that apple in there and, and even a little bit of funk on the back end of boot. So definitely worth checking out. And if you guys do, guys do see something that... Uh, is approaching that style and is really kind of going for that same thing. Definitely check it out because it's a very different drinking experience from your average cider. Uh, Brian, do you have any recommendations as far as cider is concerned today? I would say if you get your hands on the uh, the Farnham Hill ciders, those are some of my favorite in the marketplace. Uh, yeah, Poverty Lane Orchards in Farnham Poverty Hill, Lane. largest producers of cider apples in the country right now. I believe so, yes. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, our North meets South, that's those apples are from them. So Steve and his crew are making some wonderful ciders. Uh, they range from dry, actually they range from extra dry to a, uh, a semi-dry that's got a, some nice sweetness. But these are apples no one's ever heard of. Dabinet, Ellis Bitter, Yarlington Mills, Rhode Island Greening. Uh, lots of flavor, lots of apples, apple flavor, but also you get some nuances of peaches and pears and lots of tannins and something that just invites another sip back and back. And it's 7% on average, uh, very tasty and very enjoyable. Yeah, beautiful. Definitely worth checking it out. And uh, Jay, you got any cider recommendations for us? Yeah, my my favorite cidery. Um, is Red Clay Cider Works yeah, in Charlotte, North Carolina. <laughs> uh, no, Albemarle Cider Works up in, uh, Virginia. Uh, yeah, yeah. in North Garden, Virginia. They, they produce pretty much... All single varietal ciders, uh, very similar to what Brian's doing. Uh, pretty much always on the dry side, and they're you know doing a lot of traditional uh, cider apples, a lot of heirloom apples. Unfortunately, they're not found outside the state, so you have to travel uh, <clears throat> up to their their place to see. But it's a really cool facility um, here in North Carolina. I really uh, like uh, both the people and the cider they make. Um, there's a place called James Creek Cider House. And their brand is called Stargazer, and they're they're a small uh, family-run orchard. I think they've got about 125 acres, something like that. And uh, they grow heirloom apples, and so they make a lot of cool uh, small batch ciders. And it's all uh, bottled product as well. And it's uh, found they're out in Moore County, North Carolina, which is I think south of Raleigh. Yeah. Um, and so they're found mostly out in that area, but they're you know they're they're growing, so it's a good cider to find. Well, I have a weekend trip in mind now. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Jay nailed two great places, two great cideries, absolutely. And just super people, really. 
both of them. Hey, there's some all right people in the yeah. cider industry. I, mean, yeah. I couldn't get any of them to be on the show, but you guys will do. Keep trying. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin wasn't available for, the, but we'll be we'll do a meat show. It'll be, it'll be all right. <laughs> uh, so Ryan, how about a beer recommendation? Oh, my beer recommendation this week is the Hogshead Brewing Divine Right Bourbon Barrel Aged Russian Imperial Stout. From it was. Barreled in 2016, they released it in December of last year, and my friends Dave and Jenny bought a bottle and saved it for me for six months. I nice. really need better friends. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a really good beer. So I think the aging, I think the holding it for six months helped mellow it out a little bit more. So you get a lot of good. It's you don't get the booze. It's I think 10.2 percent. It's not a lot of boozy taste. It's really smooth, really good. But mostly I like this beer just because of the same reason I like beer in pubs. And it's just, it was four friends just sitting around sharing a really good beer. And just, that's, yeah. That's something yeah. I think we kind of lose in craft beer sometimes yeah. uh, is just that the experience of drinking it with friends. Yeah sitting around not necessarily thinking that hard about it is yeah. is really why we should all be here to start with it's yeah. great to analyze it it's great to have respect for it it's great to to you know really be critical of it but there's something to be said for just sitting around with a group of buddies cracking open a bottle or two yeah, to me at the heart of beer culture is it's kind of why I like i wanted to read that article about the pub culture in england is the heart of beer actually is the pub culture the uh, beer house culture from Germany is just you just have people together drinking beer like you said not analyzing it but you're drinking good beer but you're just enjoying it and that's kind of what that's kind of what I believe craft beer is the heart of what craft beer is supposed to be about whereas the big brewers the heart of what they're about is creating a widget that people can drink and it's this widget that you make in China is the same as this widget you make in North Carolina, and you're trying to make them for as cheap as possible, sell them, and selling them for as most as much money as you can to make as much profit as you can. It's not about hanging out, and no matter what their commercials say, it's not about hanging out yeah. just with your friends and drinking a good beer. And we need to make sure that as craft beer drinkers, craft cider drinkers, we don't lose sight of that because at the end of the day, most of the best beer in the world has been consumed by a bunch of dudes sitting around complaining about their bosses. We don't need to lose that. <laughs> yeah. that, that that's not a bad <laughs> thing. That's a good thing. Well, I think that's where you're going to see most of the growth. I, I could be wrong, but it seems like in every market, you know, like a Charlotte or a San Diego or a Boulder, you can only have so many large Sierra Nevada style breweries. Yeah. The bulk of the growth is going to be in these small <laughs> neighborhood yeah. pub-like breweries where they're, they might not even be sold outside that city, but it's got a yeah. very local, uh, loyal following and people are going in there to do exactly that just to have have some good fellowship over over a good brew or and cider that's actually what we did in denver i was added it up i think we went to 14 breweries we did three on you that is uh, epic <laughs> <laughs> no no epic was one of them oh yeah, yeah. Epic, epic was one of them <laughs> we didn't get the great no, no pun intended right no, no it was probably more like uh, it's probably more like 10 or 12 you don't remember any past the third. Well, was Saturday, my first beer was a was a gold medal winning gold medal winning Russian Imperial Stout from Debolt. That's the one I yeah. I was gonna say you sent me the picture of that. That one. was my first of the day at twelve percent. 
tough. Started off the base really nice. <laughs> of and it was really good, but it's oh. it's a, it's one of those scary Russian Imperials because it's really smooth. You don't get the booze, and you could just sit and drink a lot of them. And it's, no, you well, can sit and try to drink a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> After about two, you're on the floor. But yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah but yeah, just going to Denver. That's the cool thing about Denver and what Charlotte's becoming and what Asheville kind of is. Is you can just go brewery hop very easy to yeah. pub crawl and still stick with nothing but suppliers yeah. which is awesome yeah. I, yeah. the one downside to charlotte and i love this city is it's not a very walkable city no. i love one of the things i loved about portland when we went to portland was literally just I, we'd never we didn't rent a car we didn't take public transit we just yeah. walked literally everywhere and being able to see the entirety of the city that way is just absolutely incredible and, and i've did. noticed the uh you know the rail trail and just if you look at a brewery map of Charlotte, it's very interesting. Especially that, now that the yeah, Noda branch opened, it's, it's incredible yeah. how much of that's following the light rail. Yeah, it is all walkable. You could take that light rail as your kind of beer cruise. Not that I've ever considered doing that before. And uh, <laughs> walk to a lot of breweries. I'll say uh, we did go to the a lot of the breweries in Denver. A lot of the newer ones were in the River North District, which is, as I sent you in the text, it's the south end version of Denver. It's like South and Charlotte, <laughs> and I'm just gonna leave it there and just say it, say it like that. Yeah, you know, South End <laughs> has great people. Uh, but uh, my beer recommendation today will be Zwickle for your thoughts. For it's a, a collaboration between Highland Brewing, which I think most people even outside North Carolina are familiar with, but also Mother Earth Brewing out of Kinston. Uh, not the West Coast Mother Earth Brewing, but the East Coast Mother Earth Brewing. I still find it hilarious that there's two. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's a Zwickle beer for people who aren't as familiar with the style. Think of it like an unfiltered Pilsner. Is just there's nothing crazy about that beer. It's just exceptionally well crafted. A perfect beer to do exactly what we were talking about. Just sit around with a group of friends, throw a throw a couple of pints back, and yeah. you know enjoy yourself. And by the way, the funny thing is when both Mother Earths are at JBF. Oh, I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> I literally, <laughs> yeah, we. <laughs> That we we're we're gonna do a whole episode on on mixed branding among breweries and cideries because a simple Google search will save folks so much trouble. <laughs> so, do you have a uh, non beer non cider recommendation for us today? Well, okay, my non beer pop culture re- recommendation today will be there. May, there was a wedding you may have heard about this weekend. I don't know what you mean, Ryan. I stopped <laughs> caring about royal weddings in 1776. <laughs> Prince Harry and Meghan Markle got married. And I will say, the reason I'm talking about this is we recorded the HBO Cord Hassenbeck Tish Cadigan version of it. And we recorded like a real like news version you of it. You recorded it? Well, I was in Denver. I couldn't watch it live. You recorded it? Oh, yes. It? Yeah, we recorded like the CBS version of the wedding and this too. We can't we can't do this podcast together anymore. <laughs> but I will say the be- the funniest thing is like the Will Ferrell Molly Shannon version sounds exactly like the commentary on the actual CBS version. It is hilarious. <laughs> oh, so the parody version does it just as well. That yeah. that is absolutely fantastic. The parody All version right, sounds just like the actual Gail King Kevin Fraser version on CBS. It in like I'm just watching going, you people are being serious and they were making fun of you in it's they might be doing same. it better. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I actually got a couple today. First off, I'm going to do a book recommendation. I'm going to recommend Tasting Cider by Aaron James. Uh, so most people who've listened to this podcast have heard us wax poetic on Tasting Beer by Randy Mosher. It's kind of become the seminal volume for basic beer education, whether it's history, varietals, 
uh, pairing. Tasting Cider is a fantastic book. It's written by the editor of Cidercraft magazine. I'm not sure I would say it's on that same level of being a definitive seminal tome. I think part of that's just a uh, a side effect of the fact that the cider industry itself is still relatively young and doesn't it, the lexicon and the definitions and kind of the the structure of it is not so well established. But it is a fantastic book if you're looking to get more into cider, get an idea for what the industry is about, some of the different places, types, and, you know, concepts within the industry. Also has an entire section on cider cocktails, which a lot of people don't realize how fantastic of a mixer cider is. Uh, they also have some food recipes as well, which cider is fantastic for cooking with. I've been preaching about cooking with beer and cider for a long time. Uh, and sake. People cook more sake. It's delicious. Uh, but yeah, definitely uh, a book worth reading if you have any interest in cider and you want to get a good, easy to consume, easy to read, well-written kind of primer on the subject. The other recommendation <laughs> I have, yeah, fuck you, Ryan. Uh, I finally started watching The Wire. <laughs> after, Excellent show. Yeah, uh, he's been hounding me about it since we started this podcast. Yeah, you, I, but you have noticed every time we bring someone on and you mention and they give, the they Wire. do the same thing. They're like, "Excellent show. Why haven't you watched it?" I finally started watching The Wire. I, I regret. I'm gonna say it. I shouldn't have waited. It is absolutely spectacular. The cast is. I'd love to bet you like Idris Elba's in this show. Yeah, if you had just yes. told me Idris Elba was in it, I would have watched it. That man is um, incredible. But uh, it's a fantastic show. If you guys haven't watched it, I'll be the first to tell you get get, get around to it because you will feel like an idiot for having waited so long. So I mean, you've watched? How much have you watched? So I am almost through the first season. Okay. Uh, yeah. So so Omar is coming, people. <laughs> All right, so that's about all we got for the show today. Uh, I do have one one recommendation that I want to Ooh, yeah, please, there. please. So there's a, uh, there's a gentleman out there named Eric West, and he's a huge cider advocate. He, he uh, helps organize a lot of competitions and, and things across the country. And one of the things he puts out is a monthly, uh, or I think it's more than monthly, it's an email newsletter, and it's called uh, Cider Guide, I believe. Cider News, excuse me. And... Um, he basically consolidates articles from all over the country uh, or all over the world about cider and then the final section of the newsletter is he takes reviews from all those uh, independent podcasts, uh, blogs and everything and they all review ciders he puts them all into one place so you can get a lot of your cider news all in one newsletter uh, I think it comes out weekly actually so it's called Cider News and you just go on and, and subscribe and uh, it comes right to your email box it's a great uh, cider resource. Yeah, <laughs> definitely going to be signing on to that literally as soon as we're off the air. Awesome. <laughs> uh, no, that great call out. Uh, aside from that, guys, I think we're about done for the day. Uh, tell Thank them uh, where they can find you online, Ryan. Uh, you can find me at beercounselor.net, and there should be an article or a blog post going up about Denver sometime this week. And you can also find me at craftconsulting.beer. And you, you can yeah, that'll be up, that will be updated, and there will be some new content for that coming up June first. Oh, I'm definitely looking forward to that. <laughs> uh, and you can find me online at liquidassets.blog. You can also find us on Twitter at uh, at between the pints, and you can find myself at liquidassetsag. Do you have a Twitter account for the beer counselor there, Ryan? Yes. I don't know how I'm not going around to asking you that. Yes. At, yeah. At you don't beer, even know what it's it at is. At beer counselor <laughs> log on but i don't ever read it and then i can also be found at, <laughs> at mo writer 
is my other is my personal Twitter account. And you guys can find me on my personal Facebook at Chief Redbeard. Uh, please look <laughs> me up. Now, guys, uh, definitely thank you for joining us on the show. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Please go ahead and subscribe, people. You can find us at anywhere that you find podcasts. And if you guys do uh, follow us along multiple platforms, please sign up for all of them. Some are a little slower about updating than others. One way or the other, uh, expect to see us back in about a week. We're going to be toying around a little bit with a new format, so expect to see that coming around yep. the bend. Either way, have an excellent day. Cheers, slancha, and most of all, bottoms up. Peace. Yeah. <laughs>